Amen. If you'll remain standing for the reading of God's Word, as it is our privilege to return to God's Word, and tonight with Psalm 45, has been our practice for the last uh, numerous Sunday evenings. We've been working our way through the Psalter. Our plan is to go through Psalm 50 and then to go to a a new text, uh, the Scriptures, but uh, we want to make it at least one-third of the way through the, the songbook, the Psalms that the Lord has given to us. And so tonight we look at Psalm 45, indeed a a great and glorious psalm that points us to Christ. To the choir master, according to Lilies, a masculine of the song of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach your awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of king are among your ladies of honor. In your right hand stands the queen in gold of a fur. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek you with favor and with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along, as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. As we conclude the month of April and enter into May, many Weddings will soon be upon us. May through October is considered wedding season. We will have two in this place next month alone on back-to-back weekends. And it is amazing that in our culture, despite its commitment to marriage and to family that has so eroded our society, weddings are still a big deal in our culture. They are big events big celebrations where families and friends of the bride and groom gather and they enter into the joy of those being married as well as in love in general because everybody loves a good love story. In many ways, weddings are a culmination of that love story. Hopefully not the end, but just the beginning of it. And so these ceremonies and these celebrations are unique, but they're not unique to our time or even to our culture. 
You can say that they are a part of every time and a part of every culture because they have been a part of our world since the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden with the first wedding and marriage of that of Adam and of Eve. And so every marriage, therefore, has been a result of that first union, the coming together of that man and that woman. But what we can say is even more than that, that God has given us marriage and has allowed humans to enter into this marriage ceremony because it is a picture of the covenant relationship, the covenantal union between God and his people, more specifically between Christ and his church. That is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 that we know so well. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He goes on to say, this mystery is profound, but what I am saying refers to Christ and the church. In other words, marriage was given to be a greater picture of Christ and his church. That that union that a husband and wife has is really a picture of the greater union that Christ and the church has. And so tonight as we return to the Psalms, we have the Psalms version of Ephesians 5, that of Psalm 45. We could say it was Ephesians 5 before there was even Ephesians 5, because what we read clearly portrays a wedding, but not just any wedding. The wedding of a king marrying the princess that is soon to become his wife, and therefore this is a noble wedding. It is a royal wedding, but even more than that, it is a divine wedding. This is the wedding of all time, the marriage of the lamb to his bride, the church. And therefore, to understand this psalm, we must understand it as a messianic psalm. Praise of Christ as the true bridegroom and us, the church, as his bride. And so we'll see that in three points tonight. The king, the bride, and then the wedding. First, the king. This psalm was probably inspired by an actual wedding, perhaps that of one of the kings of Israel, perhaps that of Solomon. But it, as I said, it's more than that. Because pictures and icons were not permissible because of the second commandment, the Hebrew people were much more of a verbal people, capturing with words rather than with pictures or portraits, and doing that which pictures could not and cannot. I think we as a culture are too visual and not verbal enough. Yes, it is true, a picture is worth a thousand words, but a picture does not engage the heart and mind like, like words do. Words make us think Just as you would think of a picture book, a picture book is helpful, but you really cannot go into depth like you can in a novel. And so it takes hard words, words to capture the rightly chosen words, 
that are so needed and necessary. That's why Proverbs say a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. Therefore, poetry and songwriting is such a true art, is it not? Those that are good at words and crafting them together can give us a, a picture that engages the heart and the mind more than an actual picture can itself. And that's what we have with this psalm this night. You could see the psalmist as a wedding photographer, but doing so with words. It's a task that he's willing to do. It's a task that he is eager to do. Because as he says, this is a, a noble or pleasing theme. You see that in verse 1. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme as I address my verses to the king. It abounds in him as he thinks about his subject matter. As he begins to address and write verses about this king. He says, my tongue, at the end of verse 1, is like a pen of a ready scribe. In other words, his, his quill is full of ink and his page is ready to be filled with words of praise and adoration because there is no lack in his mind of what could be said when he thinks, when he meditates, when he has this king before him. And as we know, as I mentioned at the very beginning, this is a messianic psalm, which means that we should see the Lord Jesus Christ pictured in this psalm. And so when we think of Christ, should it not be true in us that joy and exuberance abounds and that our words would be profuse and that they would never be sufficient because there is never enough words to capture our love, our affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. I love how the Apostle John concludes his gospel. He says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In other words, John says, I had to be very selective in the things that I wanted to write to you. Because if I could write of all of it, there would not be enough books in order to speak of all the wonder, of all the adoration, of all the praise that I have for this man, this Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's much like that hymn that we love to sing here. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. What are we saying when we sing that psalm or that hymn is that even if we had a, a thousand tongues, which we do not, we only have one, but even if we did have a thousand tongues, it would not be enough. It would not be sufficient to be able to adequately describe our Lord. And that is the attitude of this psalmist as he begins. Now, it might be helpful to us tonight to understand the wedding custom of the day when the, the psalmist was writing, when couples were engaged to 
be married, that would be known as betrothal. And that betrothal was a covenant agreement, not only between the the bride and the groom, but between their families. And this was as binding as the marriage itself. That's why when it speaks of Mary and Joseph, that says Joseph understands or comes to the realization that Mary is with child. He is about to divorce her. And you might say, why is he divorcing her? He's not even married to her yet. That is true. It's because they were to be droth together. And so therefore they would have to go through a, a divorce type ceremony in order to annul that betrothal. That's how binding it was. But once the betrothal took place between the groom and the bride, the groom and his family would go away and they would make all the arrangements that would be necessary, not only for the wedding, but for life together. And that could be a relatively short time or that could be a relatively long time. But the bride was to always be ready at any moment, at any time, at any day for her groom to come to receive her so that the wedding could take place and that their life together could begin, could commence. Do you not hear so much scriptural language in that type of custom? You should, because it's throughout the scriptures itself. For example, John 14, 3, Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That is the language of betrothal, that Christ is going away, but he is coming back again for his bride. Jesus also tells the parable of the ten virgins. You remember five that were wives and five that were foolish. And the five foolish ones were unprepared. Why? Because the bridegroom tarried. And so they were not ready when he came. And so therefore they were shut out of the wedding party. And therefore it has the idea that we are to always be ready, always be looking for the return of our Lord, knowing that he could come at any time and any moment. And so when we read Psalm 45, we should understand that all is ready. The wedding is about to begin. The wedding feast has been prepared. The the palace has been made ready for the bride, for the queen. And so now the, the king is going to get his bride. And that is what we read in verses two through nine, is that this is this joyous and joyful procession, the march, as it were, to the bride's home to receive her, to take her back and to marry her. And so you could understand that since this is the king, this would have been a national event. It would have been a a parade-like ceremony. And the psalmist is writing as an observant of this, a participant in the festivities and in the procession itself. But it is very interesting that when he speaks of it, he speaks very little of the fanfare of the things that are going around. No doubt there would have been banners, and no doubt there would have been 
music, and, and there would have been a, a long stream and caravan of those that would have been going before and after in front of the king and behind him, probably armies walking to go get this woman, this one that is to be the queen. But the psalmist doesn't write of any of that, does he? He writes all about the groom and then about the bride. And that is why I believe that weddings should be simple affairs. Yes, they should be nice. Yes, they should be celebratory. But at the end of the day, they should be simple. Because why? You don't want people to leave talking about all the the wonderful flowers and all the wonderful arrangements and all the wonderful food and all the wonderful accommodations that were made and nothing about the, the bride and groom or about the wedding itself. You would say that those that participated in that wedding missed the points, wasn't it? The point is that these two would become one. Well, the psalmist does not do that. His focus is rightly fixed. That's why I love Samuel Rutherford's hymn that we just sang. The sands of time are sinking. That last verse, the Bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hands. The lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Indeed, that is what we read about here in this psalm. The lamb, the the king, the bridegroom is all the glory in this Psalm. He is the king. And we see this in the way that he is described. We see some of the the praise that is given of this king. Notice first in verse 2 of his beauty. He says, You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Now, some translations want to soften this idea of being handsome, and and they might write, uh, You are the most fair, or you're the most excellent. But the Hebrew term is, you are the most beautiful of the sons of men. I think the ESV is correct to say you are the most handsome of the sons of men because men are supposed to be handsome, right? Not beautiful. And so, therefore, it's describing his beauty. Now, when we think of beauty, typically we think of external beauty. But that is not where the scriptures place its emphasis The beauty of an individual is the inner beauty, the inner character, that of the heart. And here is the same. When we think of the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, it was not his external beauty that we would be attracted to or that we would be drawn to. In fact, Isaiah says that in Isaiah 53. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. You remember Saul, when he was chosen. Why was he chosen? He was chosen because he was the the tallest and the most handsome of the Israelites. But in the end of the day, he was a miserable king, wasn't he? But David, he was overlooked. Overlooked not only by Samuel, he was overlooked even by his own father. And yet, what does God tell Samuel? Man looks at the outward appearance, 
but God looks at the heart. And David indeed was a man after God's own heart. And there is great beauty in that, isn't there? That's why the, uh, Solomon in Proverbs talks about that charm is deceitful and beauty is fading. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And that is true not only of women, but of men. That those that fear the Lord, that is true beauty. That is the the inner character that we should look for. And so when we think of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shouldn't think of him in the, the way that he would appear to us. That there would be nothing that would draw our eye to him. And so we should not think that when Christ comes back, he will look like a movie star. Or as an artist, often betray him with high cheekbones and and flowing Pantene Pro-V hair flowing down to his shoulders. That is not the way that we should think of our Lord. And that is why I think we should stay away from pictures of Christ, not only because the scriptures command for us to not make images of God, the second commandment, but because we should not have preconceived ideas of what the Lord Jesus Christ looks like. Why? Because we are not to fall in love with Christ's looks. Rather, we are to fall in love with his character and with his heart, the kind of savior that he is. Because in that way, he indeed is the most handsome of all men. Because he is the the perfect man. He was what God intended Adam to be. And yet Adam failed so miserably. And yet Christ perfects. Notice some of the things that the psalmist points out of why Christ is so beautiful to us. And notice this is not outward, but Inward, the inward character of the heart of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 2, grace is poured upon your lips. Isn't that a beautiful statement? That grace, not condemnation, but grace is upon the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he is just, and indeed he is just, he is gracious. And so these ought to be words of comfort and peace to us as we go to the Lord Jesus Christ in our sin and in our misery. What do we receive from Christ? Do we receive condemnation? Do we receive how could you? Why would you do that again? No, what we receive from the Lord is grace upon grace upon grace because the words of grace are poured Upon your lips. Notice verse 4. In majesty you ride out victoriously for the cause of truth. That Christ is for the cause of truth. He does not have words that come out that are insincere or words of flattery or that which we want to hear. No, Christ is forever true. There are no lies, no deceptions with him. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That which he speaks forth is always truthful to us. Notice also, he goes on to say, for the cause of truth and meekness. The 
character that we see, the psalmists want us to understand this picture of our Savior is that of meekness and that of humility, that of being lowly. That is what we celebrated on Palm Sunday, wasn't it? That was portrayed in his triumphant entry, the meekness and lowliness of Christ, that he could have commanded all praise, all glory. He had legions of angel at his ready at any time to, to call upon, and yet he did not have to, nor want to. Why? Because he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He laid down his life willingly, humbly, in meekness, in humility. Notice also, for the cause of truth, meekness, and righteousness. He stands up for what is right and what is true. There's no unrighteousness in him or in his deeds. He's a man of integrity and good repute, not saying one thing and getting another. Likewise, he does not stand for any injustice or any impartiality. In this world, we, we love to speak of justice, don't we? And we know that in this world, we will not ever have perfect justice. But one day when Christ comes, he will execute that perfect justice. And so if you do not get justice in this life, do not worry. Rather, commit it to the Lord. Commit it to the one who will judge rightly and justly on the day of judgment. No sin will go unpunished. No crime will be left undone when Christ, the righteous judge, executes his justice on this earth. And that's why we see in this psalm as well that this picture of Christ is not that of a pushover or that of a wallflower. No, it says that he will indeed execute punishment upon his enemies. Notice verse 3, gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one in your splendor and majesty. He bears that sword not in vain. Look at verse five. Your arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. That the arrows are ready to take down those that oppose him and are enemies to his kingdom. Again, did we not see this? Do we not read of this in the gospels of our Lord Jesus Christ? That he was not engaged in physical battles. He never took a sword and pierced anyone or arrows and, and had them to pierce the hearts of his enemies. But he did in the one sense, not with a physical sword, but a spiritual sword. That of truth and righteousness and, and justice with those that opposed his teaching as well as with spiritual principalities and powers and cosmic forces of darkness, that our Savior was never defeated or confounded. Rather, his enemies could not stand against him. And the word of truth, the, the sword of the Spirit that he bore so adequately, and even when it seemed like his enemies had won, when they had become victorious, even then, it says that he went from the grave forth in splendor, in majesty. Indeed, in verse 4, it says, In your majesty you ride out 
victoriously. Isn't that what we just celebrated last week? The victorious riding out of the the grave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see the beauty of Christ, do we not, in his character. This grace and boldness, this strength and this mercy. And just in case you think that this psalmist might be writing of just an earthly king, look at what it says in verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Notice that this cannot be of an earthly man or an earthly king because no man could ever have a throne forever and ever. Don't we see kings coming and going, presidents coming and leaving because they cannot keep power forever, but this throne is one that is forever and ever because it is the throne of our God. Look at verse 7. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Notice that the psalmist here is making a distinction even within the Godhead itself. You ever wonder, is the the Trinity truly a, a biblical aspect? Yes, it's not even just a New Testament aspect. We see it here in the Old Testament, just like we saw it in Psalm 2 when it talks about, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I'll tell of the decree of the Lord. You said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord that I will make you, your enemies, a footstool. Throughout the Psalms, indeed throughout the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, we see this scriptural distinction, the the father and the son relationship. So this psalm is far more than an earthly king. And the author of Hebrews proves it. In fact, he quotes Psalm 45 in the first eight verses of Hebrews chapter 1 to show forth the glorious king that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this glorious king indeed has a a glorious kingdom. Your throne is forever. Your scepter is the the rule of your kingdom in uprightness. Notice this before we move on to the bride. Notice it says his kingdom is one of gladness. Notice that. Your kingdom you have anointed with the oil of gladness. Indeed, we should not be dour Presbyterians. We should know that the kingdom of God is, a, is one full of gladness and happiness and, and joy. And so, too, is the kingdom of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the scene is really too wonderful, and we could go on all nights of the character of our Lord and King, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the scene shifts, doesn't it, from the groom to the bride, And we notice this here in the beginning of verse 10. As the groom narrows in on the home, on her home, there's this loving exhortation. It's a word of comfort to calm some nerves and to calm some anxiety. It says, hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ears. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty Perhaps there were some anxious moments. No doubt all of you ladies, even some of you men, can remember on your wedding day a lot of anxiety, a lot of worry, a lot of nervousness. 
Is this what is right? Am I making the right decision? These vows that I'm taking are forever. Am I ready to do that? But look at what the psalm says. Hear and listen. Forget your people and your father's house. Yes, this takes commitment. It's not one foot in, one foot out. It's not keeping the, the back door open. It's putting your hand to the plow and not looking back. And this phrase, forget your father and your father's house, ought to remind us of Abram's call in Genesis chapter 12. When God calls Abram and says, go forth from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. That is what is needed in every marriage and every wedding. Don't we hear those words? Leave your father and mother and cleave to your wife. We say it's the the leave and cleave statement. Well, when we think of being married to the Lord Jesus Christ, that call is the same upon us as well. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's an overemphasis, obviously, to make the point. Are we to hate these individuals? Obviously not. But in comparison to our love for Christ, it should be as hate that our commitment would be so much greater than to any earthly or human relationship that we have. And so, too, here the psalmist is saying that there is a call to commitment as well as to obedience. Notice this in end of verse 11. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. Wives in marriage, we hear this word, wives are to submit to their husband as to the Lord. But this is more than just a natural submission of marital relationship. This is a submission to a king and to our Lord. And indeed, that Lord should be capitalized, I think, in the the ESV, even though it is not, that we are to bow to the Lord. Understand that when the Lord calls us, it demands our all, our life, our commitment to him. Obedience is needed. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. When we obey Christ out of our love and adoration for him. Now you might say, that doesn't seem very comforting. It's a call to commitment. It's a call to obedience. Why should we be comforted by that? Well, we give our commitments. We give our pledge of obedience and fidelity to this king because what we are entering into is so much greater than that which we are leaving behind. And notice what it says here in verse 12. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of all the people. Notice what the psalmist is saying. Dear princess, dear bride-to-be, dear queen, notice what you are going to become and look what you are leaving. In many ways, you're, you're leaving behind the slums for the palace. All that he has is now going to become yours. 
your kingdom is now, or his kingdom is now your kingdom. And it's the same with us as well, that we are to give of ourselves to the Lord. Why? Because the Lord is so much greater than anything of this earth. All of the riches of this world will, will fade and perish. Well, moth will, will come and destroy. Rust will have it to return all to dust. Nothing that you give up will not be repaid a thousandfold. When we give ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, his kingdom becomes now your kingdom. It reminds me of the words, those famous words of the missionary Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Indeed, all of the things of this earth is fleeting and fading. But in Christ is all the gifts and riches that are eternal forever and ever. And so give of your commitment and obedience to this King, dear bride of Christ. Well, third and finally, we see here at the very end the the wedding. We have the climax. And it seems to be somewhat strange comments when it says in verse 13, all glorious is the princess in her chamber. I say it is a strange comment because, yes, in human weddings, the bride is the focal point. The attention is rightfully given to the bride. But if the bride is the church, as we understand it to be in this psalm, can we truly call the bride glorious with all her sin, with all her schism, with all her scandal that we see way too often. Is she still glorious? Yes, she is. Though she is not what she shall be, as 1 John 3 says, the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ indeed is glorious. Why is that? Is it because she herself, that we are glorious in and of ourselves? No, far from it. It's because he is glorious and he has set his affections upon us. The princess has not made the beloved queen unless the king takes her to be such. The bride is not the bride unless the bridegroom makes her his own. But once he does, once he has chosen her, once he has set her affections upon her, she has the same glory as the king. She has the same authority. She takes his name and becomes one with him. Isn't that what we just saw and witnessed in baptism, that the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is given to us? We are given his name. We are made one with him. All that is his becomes ours. That is where the picture of marriage is one of the best pictures that we have of the union that we have with Christ. As the two leave and become one and cleave together and become one flesh, so too in regeneration and faith, because of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are made one with him, never to be separated, never to be divorced. And therefore, 
the bride indeed becomes glorious. Notice what the psalmist writes of her, that her robes are interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king. She has these beautiful robes. It's the robes of Christ's righteousness as we understand them correctly. And she has the, the gold of Ophir upon her. It's all because of his glory, because of his righteousness. And therefore, we have this wonderful phrase, do we not? I think it is the highlight of this psalm. Verse 14, in many color robes, she is led to the king. There's no more beautiful phrase than this. But there is a day coming when the bride will be made right, will be made beautiful, will be made glorious. It is that wonderful scene that we see so often when we get ready and we are waiting and we're anticipating for those back doors to open up and everybody rises and everybody is looking at the bride and looking at the groom and and seeing this wonderful moment. So too, that will be our moment when Christ comes back again. And the bride of Christ, we as the church, will be dressed in these beautiful robes, the robes of Christ's righteousness, no longer fractured and broken with sin, no longer having physical ailments, no longer having spiritual deformity, but we'll be made right and perfect and beautiful, ready for our groom. Isn't that what? John writes about at the end in Revelation 21 in verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for our husband. That is what we see here. That this is what is pictured. This is what is anticipated. This is what we are looking forward to. This is what we await for. This glorious wedding day. The consummation day. The new heavens and the new earth. When the heavens and the earth will be made one. The the true bride. The true church. The church triumphant. The saints of old. As well as the, the saints of new and of present day. Will be made one. And we will enjoy the wedding feast of the Lamb. And we will live and dwell happily ever after, forever and ever with Christ. What joy that should fill our hearts. And notice that in verse 15, with joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. Isn't that just another way of what John says at the very end? That a voice came from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he said, the one seated on the throne, Behold, I am making all things new. There we shall dwell and reign forever. Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we get excited for earthly weddings, should we not be that much more excited for this wedding? If we are anticipating our wedding, if you are single or engaged or about to be married, and you are counting down the days, and you should, should we not count down the days as it were for this 
wonderful day? Should we not pray for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? If we look upon our marriage, those of us that are married, with wonderful fondness, should we not look at this with even greater fondness than this, to be eternally married, perfectly in union with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who is indeed the most lovely, the most beautiful, the most handsome of them all. Should our not hearts overflow, our tongues pour forth praise as this psalmist does, as we think of this wedding feast of the Lamb. Truly it is far greater than what we can think, far greater than what we can even imagine. The scripture says, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man can imagine what God has prepared for those that love him. Indeed, the very beginning of this psalm, the inscription says that this is a love psalm. Indeed, it is. The love that we have for Christ and the love that Christ has for us as his bride. It truly reminds me of one of my favorite hymns. My favorite stanza of that hymn, stanza four of For All the Saints, when it says, But lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day when the saints triumphant rise in bright array and the King of glory passes on his way. Alleluia, alleluia, amen. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful psalm. Lord, indeed, there's not enough words to describe our praise and our admiration for you as our king, as the true bridegroom, that you would set your affections, that you would set your love upon us, the bride, and that we, O oh Lord, would be indeed the apple of your eye. And so, Lord, we long for the day when you would come back and that you would make us one, that you, having sanctified us and having cleansed us through the washing of water with the word, that you would present us in splendor without spots or without wrinkle or any such thing, that we would be holy and without blemish. Lord, those words indeed are too wondrous, too glorious. But Lord, we thank you for pictures of such an event as that, of the true wedding feast of the Lamb. And Lord, would our heart glow as a result of the admiration and love that we have for you. For indeed, you are the most beautiful, the most handsome of all the sons of men. And we love you, O Lord, and we praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray all these things.